Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 38, The Battle of Big Bethel, skirmishing in June of 1861. We're not quite done with General Butler's adventures on the Virginia Peninsula, because Butler isn't quite done himself. Although, just as a little advance warning, the physical battle will not go nearly as well as the political war for Butler. However, First, let us take a slight detour for a relatively minor, or even bizarre, event that had an outsized impact on political opinion in the North at this time. Elmer Ephraim Ellsworth, and no, I am not making that name up, hailed from New York, where he was born in 1837. Yet it was not there that he would, somewhat accidentally, make his mark in history. As a young man in 1854, and yes, the math is correct, he was 17, moved to Illinois in order to seek his fortune. Apparently holding a personal interest in military science and practice, he decided to sign up with an Illinois militia company called the Rockford Grays. As it turned out, Ellsworth made for an excellent drill master and soon found himself teaching several other militias in the Northwest. He transformed unimpressive, slapdash militia companies into sharp, snappy outfits. To be clear, what we are talking about here is not precisely military maneuvers as envisioned by modern soldiers of the day. Light militia companies, often called SWAVs, practice bayonet drill and marching, but these techniques in the main were not the same at all as those seen on the real field of battle. Instead, the troops would perform synchronized routines to demonstrate crisp action, as they showed off all the flourishes possible with the bayonet, including marching and firearms drill. Actually, the closest modern equivalent that people may personally be familiar with is a, like a marching band or a cheerleading group, except with firearms and bayonets substituting for music or acrobatics. A few reenactor teams do still, in fact, practice the Zouave drill, and you may be able to see such styles in person if you check for events at Civil War battlefields or other historical societies. Now, it wasn't all that surprising given the years in question, but remember that this was a time in which northern Illinois fast became a Republican stronghold and politics were heating up. Ellsworth made his allegiance clear. Militia companies, which as volunteer outfits provided their own uniforms and required some time to practice, frequently were from the middle and upper classes and had very strong political leanings. Not surprisingly, people with a certain amount of leisure hours and spare cash tend to be better educated and more socially connected hence very likely to participate in local politics. Ellsworth and his militia friends were no exceptions. In 1860, with a presidential campaign quickly coming down the line, Ellsworth made the most of his Republican political connections and moved from Chicago to Springfield. Here he wound up studying the law and legal practice from another Illinois politician who just so happened to go by the name Abraham Lincoln. Yep, that happened. Well, the two made quite a pair, because the handsome but rather short Ellsworth, almost a foot beneath his rough-hewn chief, Elmer Ellsworth eagerly aided old Abe awfully ably all along her 1860 election events. Ellsworth reached a certain level of fame himself, actually, for as a kind of political stunt, he led the U.S. Suave Cadets on tour, where they put on shows and demonstrations against local groups all across the North. Ellsworth himself, still only 23, had dashing good looks such that a later generation might have seen in a Hollywood film set, and he became something of a minor celebrity. Sharp in mind, body, and appearance. 
He seemed to almost embody the young Republican Party's self-image as future-oriented Americans with rising hopes and dreams. Men wanted to shake his hand even as schoolgirls swooned over his photographs. And yes, that they really traded around his photographs. Ellsworth would spend much of his remaining time escorting Lincoln during the campaign and assisting him thereafter. But once the wave of secession broke, and it became clear that some kind of war had begun, Ellsworth ran, not walked, into action. By the end of April 1861, Ellsworth was raising a New York Zouave company and departed with it bound for Washington to defend his government against rebels and traitors. He would place among the first organized regiments to reach the city and prepare to defend it against all threats. On May 24th, one day after news of Virginia's own secession reached Washington, the newly christened Colonel Ellsworth received fresh orders to cross the Potomac and take up a position in Alexandria, Virginia. Now, Alexandria lies just south of the city, and General-in-Chief Scott needed to hold the location in order to secure the river, as well as all approaches to Washington from Richmond or any part of the Confederacy. Now, this was a well-planned advance to control the south bank of the Potomac, but in fact calling it an attack would greatly oversell the situation. No organized Confederate or Virginia force occupied this ground, which had never been fortified. In fact, the only fortifications nearby were the defenses at Fort Washington, Maryland, across the Potomac, a bastion which offered little utility in the current crisis. Most crucial among the grounds occupied in this general movement was, in fact, nearby Arlington, the plantation once owned by George Washington Park Custis, the adoptive son of George Washington, and which, coincidentally, was inherited by the wife of Robert E. Lee. The Lees, in fact, had not controlled it for very long, nor was their ownership unencumbered by obligations. Nor were they driven out by this military occupation. Both Mary and Robert E. Lee had just left, for everyone could see that the broad open ground directly across the Potomac from the center of Washington, D.C., was the perfect place to form troops for either the national government or the burgeoning Confederacy. No government in world history could tolerate that situation, and General Winfield and Scott was no fool. Of course, given the situation, this was hardly a lengthy adventure. With orders to set out in the early morning, Colonel Ellsworth and his wives reached Alexandria, hopped off a steamship, and occupied the town without a shot fired in just a couple hours. The few local militia in town wisely decided they had elsewhere to be at that particular moment. The whole story likely should have ended quietly once the national troops took possession of the telegraph office, to which point was itself a massive sign of the change in everyday life and warfare alike in the span of one decade. However, as fate would have it, Colonel Ellsworth and some troops passed by the Marshall House Inn on King Street and noticed a large Confederate flag hanging upstairs, signaling the pro-secession allegiance of the owner. Ellsworth ordered that it be hauled down well, not so much ordered as personally led the party to do this. Evidently, he set, found the symbol of treason intolerable. This was also quite normal. Union commanders did not permit Confederate flags to remain up in their presence. But for him, this turned out to be an awful mistake. With four soldiers, Ellsworth went upstairs and tore down the offending flag. But when they returned down the steps, the innkeeper, James Jackson, appeared with a double-barreled shotgun. Jackson aimed at the soldiers, whereupon Corporal Brownell, first in line of the men descending the stairwell, 
saw it and knocked the weapon to the side with his bayonet-tipped rifle. Jax had pulled the trigger and fired before the gun was clear, and the shell ripped through Ellsworth's chest. The innkeeper immediately attempted to kill Brownell, but the corporal shot him in the face. Jackson and Ellsworth died almost simultaneously. In death, however, Ellsworth's glory exceeded by far that of his life. As a martyr ambushed by a pro-Confederate civilian, he made for a near-perfect national hero in those dark hours. Conveniently for myth-making, his death occurred quite literally directly in front of New York Tribune reporter Edward House, immediately guaranteeing that the shocking event would become a major story, or even front-page news. Ellsworth's death triggered a wave of public mourning, but also an outburst of personal grief from the president. He seemed to view Ellsworth as a kind of son, so close was he to the family in this time. The colonel received a state funeral for his courage and untimely demise. Colonel Ellsworth's death was, in that sense, very nearly the first casualty of the war, the first man cut down in anger, and perhaps foretold Lincoln's similar death in 1865. The widespread memorials, editorials, and even music created as a result touched many who had met Ellsworth in person, but also those who only knew him through pictures. It spurred recruitment at a crucial moment, as well as perhaps hardening attitude towards Southern civilians. Even many fence-sitters might wonder why Virginians were so mad with secession fever that they aimed to gun down good Union boys like assassins in the dark. And note that, Jackson had never been under personal threat. No one intended him harm. That all being said, the romance of Ellsworth would give way to the mud and blood at the Battle of Big Bethel two weeks later. General Benjamin Butler was never one to sit idly, and in between accidentally on purpose taking his own moment on stage to destroy American slavery, he found time to start a rather insignificant but somewhat prophetic battle. As we've mentioned previously, the Confederate forces on the Virginia Peninsula withdrew once the Union landed substantial forces of their own at Fort Monroe. In theory, a direct drive from this base would lead an army directly to Richmond. Now, in practice, this didn't quite happen, at least not until 1862, for the peninsula had some natural defensive barriers, and it was difficult, if not impossible, to fully supply the army by sea. By the time the Union overcame these obstacles next year, Richmond itself had become a fortress. Nonetheless, Butler wished at least to advance if he could. And this was hardly a farcical notion, for at least right now, he had ample military forces on hand. From an initial garrison of 2,000, his little army had grown to 7,500 well-armed men in just a month. By the standards of any previous armed force in the Americas, and still in the dawn of this war, that was a pretty powerful card to play. To oppose them, Virginia, and very shortly the Confederacy, had in place the 50-year-old Brigadier General John Bankhead Magruder, or Prince John as his nickname went. Magruder had only a third of Butler's force to his name, but he did have several major advantages. First, his side was operating mostly on friendly ground and knew the terrain. Second, Butler would have to keep much of his force guarding the fortress and also the town of Hampton, where, as I explained in our last episode, hundreds of slaves now sheltered, growing by the day. However, the last factor was the most important, Magruder himself. Prince John was an experienced soldier with multiple commendations to his name, a legacy of his time in the Mexican-American War. Moreover, 
Events would prove that he had somehow become an absolute master of warfare by deception, constantly able to outfox much larger forces. And at his right hand, he had Colonel Daniel Harvey Hill, ready to make his own first mark in command. D.H. Hill had his flaws, but might have been one of the best fighting men in the Confederacy. Now to explain, Colonel Hill was an unusual character in the best of times, even more the stresses of the war years. Like most commanders in the war, he went through the School of Officers in West Point and had a commission in time for the Mexican-American War. Unlike most, he became a professor of mathematics with a decidedly unusual bent to writing word problems. He apparently didn't like Yankees at all and amused himself by making that particular fact crystal clear in his professional work, to a degree which certainly made it impractical to sell his textbooks outside the South. This probably bothered him, but little, ensconced as he was in Washington College, now known as Washington and Lee University. To clarify, a text by Hill contained the rather amusing example, A Yankee mixed a certain number of wooden nutmegs, which cost him one quarter cent apiece, with a quantity of real nutmegs worth four cents. The implication here is that Hill thinks Yankee traders are casual cheats, and he uses many similar examples of nefarious northerners. Shortly before the war, Hill's sister would marry a professor at neighboring Virginia Military Institute, one Thomas J. Jackson. So, Hill was very well-connected, though as we will see, his personality does not always smooth his advancement. However, history nearly went a different direction, and perhaps none of these personalities would have mattered a whit, because General Winfield Scott of the Union High Command ordered Butler to refrain from any attacks. In this case, General Butler simply disobeyed those orders. Scott had some good reasons for his decision, but this does not mean he was universally correct. Scott thought Butler dangerously incompetent or liable to misjudgment, although this was partly a result of political disagreements. For example, Scott was furious with Butler's actions in Baltimore and in intimidating the Maryland legislature. Perhaps he was right, perhaps not but this moment arguably formed the beginning of Scott's fall from grace with the Lincoln administration. Although, that was a pretty graceful fall insofar as it went. Scott simply failed to realize, however, not for political reasons but for emotional ones, the war was going to be fought out on the battlefield one way or the other. And, although it would take Lincoln some more time to completely agree, well, Lincoln was already setting down that road and Scott never would. Already over 70 and in no physical shape to fight, General Winfield Scott could not or would not join them. Although firmly loyal to his country, he also had no wish to kill Southerners, including potentially members of his own family. Regardless of matters in Washington, or for that matter Richmond, events on the peninsula took on their own life. Shortly after pushing forward into Newport News, Butler learned that a Confederate regiment was speedily fortifying a position at Big Bethel, close to Yorktown. Magruder's force was gathering at the latter site, almost directly to the north, and he dispatched Colonel D.H. Hill to Big Bethel in order to guard against any Union advance. Big Bethel was, at the time anyway, a tiny village hosting a bridge over the Back River. Though of no great importance, Colonel Hill chose a fairly strong position, with marshy ground on the front and flanks and creeks to help slow down any Union attack. It would be difficult to move against, and even harder to flank. In theory, 
the Union troops might have been able to form a very wide maneuver around, but this might have exposed them to attack from the rear in turn. Time was short, but Hill made the most of it and began work immediately upon arriving at the site on June 7th. By June 9th, 1861, Colonel Hill had already constructed a tidy fortification that, though not close to the standards expected later in the war, showed considerable skill and placement. One might even say it was mathematically precise. And he completed the work at just the right moment, for Butler had already organized a force divided into two columns, intending to assault the Confederates the very next day. Hill's 1400 would face off against a Federal force three times their size, and despite the relatively hardened position, the sheer weight of numbers could easily prove decisive. That said, the Union movement went wrong from the beginning. The inexperienced troops, with even more inexperienced officers, stepped out an hour after midnight on the 10th. But when the two columns met a couple miles away from Big Bethel, however, disaster struck. Now, some of these soldiers anticipated needing to identify one another in the dark, and they wore armbands, though makeshift, to that effect. But when the two columns stumbled upon each other in the night, men got spooked anyway. Inevitably, some darn fool made a stupid mistake and shot off his gun. This then convinced everyone that the other column was actually in an ambush, leading to a rattle of erratic musketry that caused around 20 casualties. Of course, it also alerted the Confederate sentries only a couple miles away. At this point, Colonel Deary, commander of the Zouave force and leader of one of the columns, suggested that the attack be cancelled. Aside from the delay, the Federals would now be unable to achieve surprise. Brigadier General Ebenezer Price, the overall leader, was not dissuaded. He came to fight and he meant to do just that. At 8 a.m., the Federals launched their initial attack, driving back the Confederate pickets in a hail of rifle fire and easily capturing the small and weakly defended outworks. But it seems that the Federal troops, or at least some of them, immediately experienced some amount of surprise at the Confederate fortifications that appeared in view just thereafter. These, of course, spoiled the possibility of a fair fight, and the soldiers and officers alike had no understanding of how to invest or surround them. Those fortifications would retaliate with a sharp bombardment of the advancing Federal troops, forcing them into whatever cover might be available. For one of the relatively few times in the war, the Union artillery responded ineffectually. The cannons roared, but they accomplished nothing much. On the other hand, Confederate artillery did only slightly more work in causing hesitation in the Union ranks, and failed to halt any further attacks. The Northern soldiers would provide, however, by halting their own attack. On the Federal left, Colonel Duryea's Zouaves tried to circle the fort, but became stuck in the marshy ground and forced to keep their heads down under threat from the crash of cannon and the whistle of musketry. However, an accidental misfiring of a Confederate field piece disabled the gun and gave them an opening to charge forward and captured an exposed position. Union General Pierce then tried to advance a sizable body to support this effort and flank the Confederates, but this foundered on the shoals of human frailty. A regiment and more went on the attack, but in the confusion and the broken sight lines, troops became separated from the march. Coming back into view, the main body under Colonel Townsend fell into panic at the sight of another ambush, which was literally no more than their own soldiers marching up to fall in and close the ranks, and they fired on their own 
Townsend, having shot some of his own men, immediately ordered a retreat in fear of absolutely nothing. Unfortunately, this left the poor Zouaves hanging out on the air with most of the Federal detachment milling around ineffectually or running away. With their works to defend the position elsewhere, Confederate soldiers made an aggressive counterattack and repelled the Zouaves. However, although Colonel Dury's men might have been outgunned, they showed no lack of courage, at least in this hour. They did retreat, some of the men taking shelter in a farmhouse, but they refused to budge thereafter. According to legend, North Carolinian Henry Wyatt fell in the attempt to set fire to the residence and thereby became the first Confederate battle casualty. With the effort on the left, however, failing completely, General Pierce tried his right, and he sent out a strong column under Major Winthrop. This band struggled doggedly through swampy ground and past obstructions. Succeeding in this step, however, Winthrop then tried to rally his soldiers for one charge against the Confederate earthworks guarding a single howitzer, with the potential of circling behind Hill's fortifications and capturing the lot. With a shout of, Come on, boys, one charge and the day is ours, he waved his sword. Then, in the same breath, he dropped his sword and fell dead on the ground, a bullet having claimed his life. On just about any future battle, the loss of a major, no matter how brave, would hardly turn the tide. But the troops were inexperienced and they had no other leaders to rally them. The end of Major Winthrop's life signaled the end of the battle. There was no further push. Indeed, General Pierce couldn't have made another, no matter what kind of fighting spirit he held within his frame. The Union soldiers were just too green, and the shock of battle had scattered them. After several incidents of friendly fire, the obvious truth was that the northern boys didn't know the soldiers' craft yet. Unit discipline broke down almost immediately upon any perceived threat. After just four hours of battle, with very light casualties, the force had virtually disintegrated into little groups sitting around with no clear organization. It was over, and they retreated. That said, if the Battle of Big Bethel became a clear Confederate victory, it ultimately wasn't that much of a Union defeat. Twenty dead men, and another fifty wounded, would in the end not affect the course of any war, even if the Confederates could boast of having lost no man other than Private Wyatt. Yet while embarrassed by the poor showing, it would take the Union a bit too long to learn its lessons. The soldiers here failed to keep in line and took fright easily. They failed to act cool under fire, and fixated on the obvious threat instead of keeping it in mind and flanking. Union officers didn't plan ahead, didn't scout, didn't prepare their own lines, and they failed to make good use of their numbers. Yet Hill's Confederates showed some weaknesses as well. Although claiming contempt from their enemies, they had lost a couple artillery and by necessity fought from behind field works to even the odds. They held the position, but a more competent attack should easily have captured all of them. They had started overconfident, and they ended more overconfident. But in the larger sense, the Battle of Big Bethel looks an awful lot like a dry run for Bull Run. And so it would prove to be a month later. In the meantime, however, another Union commander was rising to prominence. Up in Ohio, George Brinton McClellan was assembling a force that would soon march across the Appalachians, and would, in fact, threaten Virginia from another flank entirely. So join us next time for the Appalachian War. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening.